Welcome to the Inspire Podcast. In this episode, we talk to comedian Helen Wood about her new show, The National Trust Fan Club. Louise Prido explores the Killerton Apple and Cider Festival. Heidi Reynolds explores Frenchman's Creek in the company of Ranger Justin Whitehouse. And we get all Christmassy with a visit to Stourhead's new illuminations. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome once again to the Inspire podcast. My name is Ben Vizard. As of course you know, in this podcast we explore some of the stories from Inspire magazine in a bit more depth. And we hear directly from the people behind those stories. Remember that if you have something you think will make a good story, you can drop us a line. You can email inspiresw at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can contact me directly. Before we go on, we should offer a hearty congratulations to the people who have been shortlisted for this year's Playing My Part Awards. The panel had a tough time choosing from over 280 nominations, but those people who have been shortlisted have now been invited to the awards evening in February, where the winners will be announced. Good luck to them. You can find the shortlist on the Play My Part Awards Acorn page and on My Volunteering as well. Later on, I'll be chatting to Helen Wood, a comedian who recently premiered her new show, The National Trust Fan Club, at the Edinburgh Fringe. She was kind enough to give me a club badge when we met, and if you go along to see the show, you'll also be in with a chance of a free cream tea, and you'll get the chance to see a puppet version of Tony Berry, our visitor experience director. What's not to like? We'll also be exploring Frenchman's Creek in the company of Heidi Reynolds and Ranger Justin Whitehouse, and we'll be dropping in on the goings-on at Killerton's Apple and Cider Festival with Louise Prideau. But first, let's get suitably festive with a visit to Stourhead. This year is the first time they've had a major Christmas offer, and the Illuminated Gardens are helping visitors to see the estate in a whole new light. Hi, good afternoon, Ben. I am Philip Niemand. I'm very proud and privileged to say I'm General Manager of Stourhead and Montpesson Estate. I think uh, I started last October and I had a wonderful experience walking up my drive uh, in middle December last year. And I say wonderful because it was just me and nobody else about. And I realized that um, at a time of year when uh, we really want to open our doors as a National Trust property for friends and family to come and spend time together, there wasn't a strong call to action for them to come do anything in particular at Stourhead. Of course, in the daytime, we have an amazing uh, house that's decorated by a dedicated group of volunteers uh, and team. And I'd invite anybody that's coming to Stourhead to come in December during the daytime to come see a a wonderful house. But other than that, um, our offer was quite limited. Um, And we know from feedback and and local other tourism entities that uh, that engagement experience is something that families are looking for. So they're looking to get out and about and spend time together. Um, So we had the vision. Uh, We just had to figure out how to do it. And so things changed this year. How how did that come about? Where did the idea for this come from? So as I say, I was walking up uh, 
the road uh, middle December last year and it was quiet, nobody about me. And I looked into the middle distance and I saw the Pantheon, which is uh, one of the uh, iconic structures in the design landscape garden at Stourhead. And I realized that actually to be able to light these significant features, natural and man-made, would be an amazing feat and, and a real treat to delight the senses. So I had the vision, but I definitely didn't have the, the skill to do it. So I went out and uh, looked for the best in the business, which is Raymond Goubet, because they do illuminated light trails at Kew Gardens, Blenheim Palace, and they did it at Dunham Massey as well. So I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with my general manager, Pierre Kirsten, at Dunham, um, and kind of draw on her experience that uh, she has had with Raymond Goubet for the last two years now. And so the partnership started 11 months ago. And what's your sort of expectations in terms of visitor numbers and so on? It is very much uh, dictated this year by the capacity of the car park. What we don't want to do is have to rely on um, people queuing in the road so that they can get in. We really want that seamless journey for people to come in to have their pre-booked car park space and let their adventure begin. So we built on from that what our capacity was in the car park and that dictated how many people we could allow each evening. And then we decided actually for the first year we we're only going to offer the event for 25 nights from the 29th of November through to the 30th of December. So starting with the weekends and then gradually building up. And as we sit here on the election evening, 12th of December, we now go into a long run of uh, show nights. So we'll now be on from now until the 24th of December. And then again from Boxing Day till the 30th of December. So we just kind of gradually built up the picture from thinking about what our carrying capacity is um, as to how many people we'd hope to welcome. I'm very pleased to say we are already past break-even point. So uh, in financial terms, the event itself is already a success. Um, incredibly, 45,000 people have already responded and said, yes, they will come visit and they will buy tickets to come see the Illuminated Trail. Um, so we hope that the word of mouth and that call to action for friends and family continues as people enjoy the experience and that we end somewhere around 60,000 ticket sales for year one. And are you expecting this to sort of grow from here in terms of next year and beyond? I think so really. Hopefully what you will see in a minute, Ben, as we go and walk around is that it is a light and soundscape of the quality befitting of Stourhead. So we looked at our local comparators such as Longleat and I definitely realised with deep within myself, although I as a family man enjoy that kind of uh, quality of content, it is not something that would work at Stourhead, you know, kind of Chinese lanterns and, and that kind of show. I really wanted to create something that was uh, befitting of this place. And I say that because for us it does need to be financially viable because those proceeds will be returned into Stourhead to help us with our conservation purpose. But I never want to get to a point where it's over-commercialized. So yes, we hope to go from strength to strength and probably sell out more quickly in the year so that we know what our capacity is. But we're never going to go to levels of 120,000, 140,000. That's not why we're doing this. We really want to keep it in that quality bracket of Probably 75 to 80,000 people would be where we'd cap it. And in order for Raymond Goubet um, to partner with us, we both had to eye each other up and shake hands and say, yes, this needs to be a five-year partnership um, because there is 
definite investment from both sides in terms of effort, this, what I ask of my staff and my volunteers, and in terms of the expertise that they can bring. So it is going to be a building partnership for the next five years. And so it's going to be a bigger impact on your, uh, your team and yourself as well. Is it going to affect your Christmas personally? Well, sadly, yes. Um, so I, uh, I choose to lead from the front, um, especially in year one. So I will be working Christmas Eve and I'll be duty manager on Boxing Day day and then into Chris, uh, Boxing Day evening as well. Um, so sadly, I won't be watching Arsenal play football during the Christmas break, um, but I do get time with my young family at Centre Parks early in the new year. So we'll refresh and recharge then. Um, and as I am doing that, I've also made sure that uh, all of my team get a chance to take time to, to rest and rejuvenate. And we as a property leadership team will get together and have our festive meal and uh, drinks uh, probably in the middle of January once all of this is said and done. Speaking as an Arsenal fan, I don't think you're going to be missing that. <laughs> Stop crying, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Should we go and have a look, Phil, and see, uh, go and see what's out there? Yes, the let me show you the treats that are the illuminated Christmas trail at Stourhead. Welcome, Ben, into the design landscape garden that Henry Hall and his grandson Richard Colt Hall designed circa 300 years ago in a valley that was originally called Paradise. So what a perfect setting for such an iconic landscape garden. And as we walk through, you'll see it's getting dark now. We're at about five o'clock and we're going to walk through 12 specific significant components. Each component is an art piece in its own right and has been designed by an individual artist. So my favorite is Ben, and we, another Ben, and we're going to happen upon him um, as we go around two turns. And he has designed a fire garden, and it's a five gold rings of Christmas fire garden. And if I introspectively reflect, it's when I went to go see Blenheim Palace last year and the lightscape that they were offering, and I stood in the Winston Churchill Memorial Garden, and there was this fire garden there. And that moment was quite ethereal for me and the, and the moment that I realized this is the quality and the impact that I want to bring to Stourhead because that moment really moved me personally. And so thankfully, uh, Ben was very happy to join us here at Stourhead this year and he's designed the five gold rings specifically for Stourhead. And the link is that we've done the 12 days of Christmas. So as you can see, we've got uh, 12 willow sculptures dotted around the route as well, all of them very well designed by a gentleman called Woody Fox, and incredibly, uh, they're all made out of willow. So that's a, a nice spot for the kids and it proved very popular. Um, but then we move on to the 12 significant pieces. So if I name them quickly, hopefully they'll have enough appeal for everybody listening to the podcast to want to come see it in person. So we have the fibre garden which is a small set of fibre optic lights spread across our south lawn with silent night movie track soundtrack in the background we then move on to the cathedral of light which is our uh, the favorite social media uh, component your walk is drawn through uh, this cathedral of sparkling little lights as you go through and introduces then we're on to ben and his fire garden we then take a corner and we bring you down and for everybody that has visited Stourhead before, 
you'll know what we mean when we say the laurel lawn, which is that whole swathe of laurel that starts at the top uh, of the embankment and sweeps down to the lake. And the original design was that your eye was not drawn to the laurel itself, but it was uh, creating a, a vista, a smooth carpet, so that your eye was drawn to the lake, the Pantheon and the landscape beyond. So we've used that inspiration to light the laurel and uh, we call it the infinity uh, lawn. So it feels like you're walking in between this, this lightscape, which is quite magical. Then we're onto a laser garden uh, with smoke, which uh, the kids love. They call it the firefly garden. We come around the corner and then we uh, have lit the bridge, the Pantheon, Apollo, and our pièce de résistance, the last uh, component, is the one that stands before us, Ben. Um, fondly known by uh, the head gardener, Alan Power, and myself as the 500 foot balls, because they are uh, 500 balls that are set in a structure um, that look quite uh, bland, perhaps disturbing in the daytime, but at nighttime they come alive and they um, are part of a light and soundscape um, that is played to the music Carol of the Bells that we've just heard. So are there sort of options for people to enjoy food and drink and stuff as they go around? Or? So we do know that uh, this is a time of year when everybody hopefully is in that festive mood and it is about spending quality time with friends and family and part of that is just that little bit of indulgence and a little bit of fun. So yes, as you arrive at Stourhead Car Park it's going to feel a little bit different this Christmas. There are fairground rides for the under seven-year-olds which is uh, their Victorian rides, um, little carousels, so I really like them and they don't have that garish music, they're just quite a nice soft uh, entity that the youngsters really love. Um, then you're into the top courtyard and we've got a pancake house and a burger van, obviously it's Wiltshire so zero calorie burger van and then of course um, our wonderful team in our Stourhead restaurant that are doing a winter menu um, as part of our cookbook bit of retail therapy in the shop and then as you come down you do the whole trail and as you exit the trail you're into the spread eagle courtyard and we have a marshmallow stand with fire pits to toast your marshmallows and a mulled cider uh, van as well and the pub does good business so we hope that you leave here feeling inspired delighted and well fed and I understand you've got a time of day for a sort of quiet time here Yes, Ben, we were very keen to allow access to this event for all our audiences and those included uh, the, the kiddies that perhaps uh, don't respond well to a very high volume of noise or sound um, and, and high uh, lightscape. So we've carved out uh, three sessions um, as part of our event um, and today's one of them so it sounds quite soft around you. So we've toned down the music. Um, and we've prioritised uh, their visit for the next hour up until five o'clock so that they can move through the space in a really calm and quiet manner and hopefully get as much uh, from their experience um, as any other person would get from theirs. I can hand on heart say that I've been absolutely overwhelmed with the volume of goodwill um, and I think it's because the music, it's music like Carol of the Bells, it's music like Silent Night um, and the quality of the light installations that we have really um, resonate and highlight the qualities already in play. So our amazing 700-year-old 700, 700 chestnut trees, 
uh, the Pantheon that you see across the lake. Uh, all of those iconic features uh, are improved by what we've done. We haven't tried to mask them and overlay something. And because of that quality, people have really bought into it. Um, and so I'm so very pleased, hand on heart, uh, I couldn't have hoped for better feedback. And if uh, staff and volunteers want to come and see it, are there still tickets available up to the 30th? There are still tickets, so what we are keen to do is control uh, car parking. So it's, uh, the ask is that they contact either myself directly or Christmas at Stourhead. Um, and for days that are available, uh, particularly midweek, um, availability is better. We'd love to welcome you to Stourhead. As long as you're going to buy mulled cider, and have a good time um, and give us you know uh, honest uh, constructive feedback um, we very much look forward to seeing you here at christmas at stowerhead sounds good to me thank you phil merry christmas ben merry christmas where's my present Coming up, Heidi Reynolds tours Frenchman's Creek with ranger Justin Whitehouse, and I chat to comedian Helen Wood about her new show, The National Trust Fan Club. But first, Louise Prideau dropped in to the Killerton Apple and Cider Festival back in October to find out more about how the event has grown over the last few years. We're just outside the ranger's tent, and I'm going to talk to Tommy Muncy, who is a ranger here. Tommy, what are the rangers doing in that tent? Okay, what we're doing in the tent I'm looking at now is apple pressing. So people bring their apples up to us and we will put them through the pulping machine or the scratter to use its fancy name. And then the gardeners who are on the presses at the back will press the juice and people will take it home with them. Well, that sounds very exciting. Now, we're just in one orchard here, aren't we? This is Sparrow Orchard. But uh, there are more than, there's more than one orchard in uh, Killerton, isn't there, Tommy? Yes, there are 10 orchards that I can put names to and additional ones that also belong to our tenant farmers. So quite a lot of orchards across the estate. To give you an idea of the scale, this year we've had such a good apple crop that we've only had to pick in three of them. And that's this one, Sparrows, Haglis Orchard down the road and Smithy Orchard, which is behind our cider barn. And that has so far made nearly 3000 litres of cider. Wow, 3,000 litres of cider, that's fantastic. I heard this morning that uh, we, we, the whole thing started with a glut of cider, so that's really good to hear. Um, and there are lots of different varieties of apples, aren't there, Tommy? There are. There are over 100 on the estate. Those I can't name, but I can tell you there's the Killerton Sweet and the Killerton Sharp, which were specially developed here at Killerton based on their genes. I think one is uh, sweet, the clue being in the name, for juice and apple cooking and the other one is a cider the killerton sharp so if you blend the two you get a mix of the dry side of cider and the sweet side of cider that sounds delicious what's the difference in making apple juice and making cider what go, what's the process so the difference is apple juice has to be pressed and filtered and bottled and pasteurised and sealed all on the same day because otherwise it will start to ferment. That's the key difference, the fermentation. So the cider that I've just made this week with the working holiday and Killerton's volunteers will now sit there in tanks for 10 months and then next year I'll take a taste around June, July time and we're ready to rack it off. And what racking off is, is when you drain one tank into another and that 
that is then the finished cider that will get sent away. So you pour away the sediment that's left in that first tank and the second one is ready to be filtered again by the bottling plant. Wow, and does the cider taste the same every year? It doesn't because we've got such a variety of apples and the trees will respond to the weather and the climate and our pruning regime in a different way every time. So this year's cider will taste completely different to what we made last year. So one year you might have some amber tones, the next year some honey tones. And you said that we've had quite a lot of apples this year. Uh, what, what's been the difference this year? Why have you only had to pick from three orchards? The difference this year, I think, is that last year, if you remember, we had a great big heat wave in the middle of sort of June, July time and into August as well. There was very little rain and I think for that reason two things have happened. The apple trees have responded in that they've grown more apples this year because there's been that balance of wet and dry weather whereas last year we just had dry so the trees were struggling and when they dropped the apples the apples were not as moist so the moisture in them was probably decreased by the sheer amount of heat we had. So I think that's the reason why this year we're getting more juice per press and we've got more apples off the trees in general. So we're now down by the music tent, which is where it will all be kicking off a bit later, especially when the food gets going. There are millions of people, well, not maybe not millions, but lots of people down here queuing for wonderful food and local produce. But we're going to interview Tim Harris, who is the Killerton's Visitor Experience Manager. So, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Apple Festival at Killerton? Well, um, it started before I was here, and I've been here for five years now, so it's been going on quite a while. Um, and the whole idea, really, was behind it, I understand, is we had a glut of cider, and we uh, actually set out to sit there and go, what can we do? And so um, we'd always done apple picking events, and we'd always had people in to help us um, with making the cider, and we decided that it was a really good way um, for, for us to publicise that, to talk to people about what we did, how we managed the orchards and everything else. And it kind of grew from there. And I think the first one we set up uh, was just purely in the orchard, as it, as, as it used to be. Um, and there was probably um, a couple of hundred people came on the day. They all had a, a cider. They all saw, saw what we did. We spoke to them about what we did um, and how we managed the orchards. And it's really grown from there. But I mean, in the past few years, I think two years ago, we saw over 9,000 people at the weekend. So, you know, if the weather's right and it's all set good, then, then that's really where we are now. So it's fantastic, really. I love that. I love the fact that it started with a glut of cider. That is fantastic. Um, and so why do you think why, that sort of obviously developed and we do a lot of conservation um, awareness raising awareness for that here now during the festival but um, why do you think it's important for us to celebrate our orchards in the National Trust? Well I think I think everything we do it's important to celebrate and everything we do it's important to publicize because people know the trust and they know it from what they can get from their membership but what the trust does is so much more so in effect whereas we would traditionally start off with um, you know people visiting houses people visiting gardens people visiting countryside you know it's more about us actually telling that story that kind of goes that, that goes deeper than that and it goes beyond it you know and it's it's all the stuff that, that we're doing here you know it ticks a lot of our of our boxes with our engagement and it brings people in and that was another interesting thing with the cider festival the cider festival has always had a lower price than our normal admission price so we've always tried to gauge it and it was very much community engagement at the start um, and you know as we've grown over the years so has the membership locally and people you know we're really put on the map that people come to the apple weekend they come and see us at christmas here at killerton and it's just a fantastic it's a fantastic way of us engaging with people and also 
introducing people to the National Trust because um, we've got a compare who works here, Joe, and Joe spends a lot of time talking to people and saying, actually, if you visit the Apple Festival, you can go and see the house, you can see the garden, your wristband will get you in all over the property this weekend. And it's a great way of us engaging locally and bringing people in to see what we do who aren't National Trust members, who aren't already signed up, who aren't already you know, keen and, and kind of understanding the trust. So people come in because it's something different, they bring their family along, they get involved, and they understand that the trust has something to offer them, as well as possibly the, the older generations of their parents and, and things like that. So I'm down by the main tent now, and I'm with Steve, who is a volunteer. Steve, how long have you been volunteering? Um, it's about a year and a half, I suppose, now I've been volunteering, and I started as a room guide in the house, and now I volunteer down on reception as well, which is what I'm doing today. Fantastic. So what's it been like this morning and, and yesterday? Have you have we had lots of people come through? It's been great. It's been a real buzz, actually. So we've got lots of families, of course, that are being an Apple Day. But actually all sorts. We've had elderly couples, we've had families, we've had overseas visitors. And some people didn't even know the Apple Festival was on. And they just turned up and there it is and it's all laid on for them. And um, yeah, it's been great. It's been really good fun. And the weather hasn't put anybody off? No, everyone's come. Most people come in their wellies. Most people are used to what Devon is like. So even though we're standing in straw, there's mud underneath. And we're, all, we're all here in our wellies. But no, everyone's... I think if you let the weather put you off in this country, you'd never do anything. So people just come out and have a good day, you know. And um, there's just a really nice, really nice feel. And there's so many, so many things on this year for children and families that it's a really good day out. You can really spend the whole day here. It's just been great. And is it, is it good to do something different as a volunteer? Obviously, this isn't quite the same as what you do on a normal day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. I think one of the great things about volunteering at Killerton is that we do quite a few events. We've got the Christmas. We have our half-term trail. So we'll be doing the pumpkin trail in a week's time. We had the uh, trail over the summer. And because I, I do these two different roles, so sometimes I'm in the house telling the story of the family. And on reception, you're just meeting and greeting and chatting to people, selling membership. And it makes it a really interesting, interesting volunteering experience, yeah. So I'm here with Chantal Barry, who is the Senior Visitor Experience Officer for the Outdoors at Killerton. I think my highlight for the festival this year so far has been um, meeting all of the storeholders, uh, especially all of those that have come from the local estate. So we've got um, Al Zaras, who are based in Broadcliss, which is part of the Killerton estate. Um, we've got Edgy Veggie here as one of our caterers. They live up in Ashcliffe Forest. Um, so that's been great. And also just talking to the breadth of people that we have here that are here to look after woodlands and trees. So as you know, in 2019, Killerton's been focusing on the 100-year centenary of the Forestry Commission. So we've got the Forestry Commission here today who have been absolutely fantastic in engaging people, learning about trees and woodlands, and the Cliss Great Trees Project that are local again, teaching people about the regional country park. We also have rangers from our sister estate, which is Honnicott, which is up in North Devon. They've come and they've helped us out with axe throwing. Um, so I think talking to all of these different people uh, and learning all about the different things they do and seeing them inspiring the public to care about nature um, has probably been my highlight for this year. Well, that's fantastic. So we really do have a lot of different storeholders, don't we? Uh, we also have, do we, ha we also have archery and um, what other kinds of things have we got carrying on here today? So we've got archery, as you've mentioned, and um, we've got a gent here called Dan Cordell who's doing chainsaw carving demonstrations. 
Um, we also have quite a few bee-related stalls here today. So we've got um, Bee Vive, who sell key rings to help revive a tired bee. Um, we've also got extra beekeepers here as well that are teaching people all about the different, uh, different types of bee that we get. Um, we also have Memory Lane, who do more traditional crafts that you might expect at a festival, so not the can off the shelf. Um, and we've got Riverford veg boxes. They've come in there selling veg boxes, which helps reduce plastic waste. We've got a real variety of stalls here today at the Apple Festival. So as Tim Harris said, Joe Fisher is our man on the mic this weekend. And Joe, you do a lot of these kinds of things. Can you tell us what makes a really good festival? I think what makes a good festival is engagement, finding things that you know are going to connect with people. And of course, this is a family event. So the key, the, the key to this really is engaging with families. Uh, so we've got nice, good entertainment. They always put on really good music acts. Uh, they're not too loud, not too crazy, but kind of appeal to everybody, good entertainers, that kind of stuff. But lots of things to do. You know, you know, families want to keep busy. Uh, we don't mind a bit of mud. We don't mind a bit of uh, traipsing around the woods, but things to do and, and there's always so much to do you can gather the apples you can do all the apple pressing but there's always the activities and things that, that, that engage with the families and I love that. Fantastic and you're a local boy Joe. Uh, so why is it important to you as a local person to support something like Killerson's Apple Festival? Well, for me, it's, I, I, it's one of my favourite events of the year. I mean, I work full-time as an MC and a presenter. I get to do events all over, the, 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 all over Europe, really. But to actually be in my home area, five minutes away from where I live, is fabulous because it's convenient. But it's also encouraging... Uh, the work that Killerton's doing and that's what I like you know I've been involved with this festival for three or four years now and we've seen it grow and we've seen more people get involved and that to me is what it's about it's encouraging families to get out and about into the countryside uh, appreciate what we've got around us rather than just sitting at home on the iPads or whatever. Coming up, I chat to comedian Helen Wood about her new show, The National Trust Fan Club. But first, Heidi Reynolds continues her Cornish ramblings with a visit to Frenchman's Creek, inspiration for Daphne du Maurier, amongst others, in the company of ranger Justin Whitehouse. Hello again, I'm Heidi. I'm a volunteer ranger down here on the Lizard um, in Cornwall, very beautiful part of the world. And today I'm off to Frenchman's Creek, made very famous by Daphne du Maurier's book of the same name. I'm going to meet Justin Whitehouse, the lead ranger for the Lizard, and his very, very cute dog, Woody. Well, hello, Justin. Hello. hello. <laughs> um, we're here to have a look at things, have a look around at the beautiful Helford. We've just walked past some great views. And actually, do you know what? Even though it's raining, it's absolutely beautiful still. Yeah, we just stopped here in this. It's a it's a it's a ring area. Of ancient uh, holly trees, ah. and um, and we only discovered these about ten years ago when we cut this new path in, and uh, and there's something incredibly magical and mythical about them almost. They're um I mean this one on our left is we think it's probably one of the oldest biggest <laughs> holly trees. See, I wasn't lying about the dog. <laughs> okay, so we're surrounded by um, holly trees. Yeah, we're just in this little circle of trees. Um, these big, huge, gnarly um, holly trees, yeah, and that one's got a, a, in total. It's probably about eight foot diameter. It's obviously been, it's, it's split apart in its time. So it's whether it's one okay. tree or a cluster of three or four trees, but we think it's probably at least three, four hundred years old. That tree. Wow. What's really interesting here is we're standing next to this little stone well, a little stone spring wow. coming out of the bank, um, and we think the two are connected. We've marked these old holy wells 
with holly trees because holly trees are historically a, a symbol of longevity of, of uh, evergreen so they're always visible during the um, oh. uh, all seasons and uh, and we're in here this part of the visit is called the Manig which okay. means the land of the monks okay and this was the old monks way it was a holy route linking up a series of holy wells up to Kavalik which is further up the Helford which was an old uh, monks abode where there was a, a where there was a monastery and we think this may have been on that on that pilgrimage route that's fantastic so obviously you know i mean i, I live just around the corner from st anthony in Manig or Manig or mm -hmm. you know and obviously yeah. we've got Manig street Manig street whatever yeah, in, in yeah. how that obviously explains why that that name exists so much yeah. obviously in this area yeah. i didn't yeah, know yeah. that there's a lot i don't know isn't there <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot, lot of it that we all don't know about it's, a, it's yeah. okay don't need to be nice head on down to um powders which is a national trust property um and i'll tell you a bit more about that when we get down there and i can just see some glimpses of the helford um, rippling across um underneath these beautiful trees that we've just talked about it's amazing what different things you see in different seasons there's never a season not to get outside well this we're just approaching um the mouth of Frenchman's Creek. So that's the main Helford River in front yep. of us. Frenchman's Creek going up to our left. And on the headland here was where Powder Thurburn um, spotted when he sailed past here um, at the turn of the last century. He spotted a for sale sign yep. and, um, and bought the headland. And, and this is the cottage we're going to have a look at. Powders, it's now known as, named after Powder Thurburn. And he was a boat builder. And it was Percy, wasn't it? Was Percy. it his first name? That's and he, he acquired yes. his name through other means, I believe. Yes, he was quite <laughs> notorious, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, allegedly, allegedly. A, a, a gun runner, an artist, um, yeah. a poet. Um, Something interesting I did read was that he never actually sold a single painting in his lifetime. He gave them all away. Oh, interesting. Yeah, oh, right. he only ever gave them as gifts. Yeah, so, but the boat here in front of us, which is now a, 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 a wreck of a, an old iron boat, is um, Powder Thurburn's, Percy Thurburn's okay. old boat. I didn't so know this wow. is part of his legacy. And, uh, and I think it's called the, the Iron something. Yes, it's not. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll look that one up. <laughs> And as promised, I've gone away and I've looked it up and it's actually called the Iron Duke. So Justin was halfway there. And I think, you know, you're right, people don't notice it. And it's because if you go for a walk in the <gasps> summer when the leaves are all, the yes, canopy's closed, completely. you can't see. But a walk at this time of year when the leaves are off the trees yeah. and it might be raining, but it is still as beautiful as ever. Well, look, I mean, the reds see... of those berries, just, you know, oh, stunning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can see for miles, as you yeah. say. I think you were, sorry, I very rudely spoke over you with my excitement of red berries, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that ability to be able to see, see the views, be able to see through the trees. And it's, yeah, the colours are magnificent. Yeah. Um, you know, still the, the oak trees are still hanging in there. Yeah. Beautiful colours and, um, and the red berries. <laughs> And apart from a very noisy dog, a, I don't know who he belongs to. <laughs> but very few we'll find people, the owner in a and minute. it's so quiet. And uh, yeah, definitely the best time for a walk in the woods. This, this whole area was obviously made very famous by um, in the novel in 1941, um, or it was released in, in 19 published. I should even say in 1941, with a, a film very shortly afterwards um, by Daphne du Maurier. Um, and it was about, um, in very short synopsis, if you haven't read the book, that person out there, it's about an impulsive young English lady um, and a French pirate. A bit of a steepish sort of path, um, but my goodness, what views you would be granted or greeted with at the bottom. Absolutely incredible. The tide's in currently, 
Um, so we've got a bit of, you know, a few leaves all bobbing around as well, which actually really adds to it. It looks beautiful. The other thing, um, actually, looking over there at those trees, I know you were at um, Kurt Jackson's um, recent um, launch yes. and... Um, something you mentioned wasn't it was about these trees that um, fall into the water they're such an evocative part of, of the Helfedor and particularly Frenchman's Creek Yeah. and somebody will describe when you go up Frenchman's Creek as the tide's going out and the mud's being exposed and all the fallen trees and the herons perched there it is, it's like the upper reaches of the Amazon um, and it's really you feel as though you're, you're exploring this unseen territory well I've just seen a mullet just rise in the, in the water in front of us um, I had my back to it just to let yeah. everybody know but these, these trees that do, you know, they, they wow. regularly fall. It's, it's nature, they're falling into the river. But they, they form an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. They, you know, by when the, the tide's out, they're, they're perches for herons, for egrets, for, for um, kingfishers, um, oyster catchers. Um, and then you look closer and they're, they're riddled with all sorts of invertebrates um, living in amongst the, the bark. And then as the tide comes up, they're then got fish and other marine life living in amongst them so there is this transition between the, the terrestrial and the marine. So I was hoping to uh, find a few fungi but it's probably a little bit late in the year now but there's a few here they're not the most interesting but my interest is the edible ones yeah, and right, the deadly okay. poisonous ones um, but this bank here I do quite often get um, hedgehog fungi which are an absolutely lovely delicacy. Really? Um, called hedgehog fungi because underneath they've got little, little spines like a hedgehog ah, okay but um, yeah because fungi are really one of those things that I, I often look at and it's one of those things that you go wouldn't it be great to get a basket and end up in casualty um <laughs> and you know or worse and yeah. i think that's the trouble isn't it you really do have to you be a bit of an expert to, like you don't yeah, you, you to, have before to you know start what going to this. but some of them are so easy to identify that hedgehog fungus it's also called a pied de mouton <laughs> in in french pied de mouton which wow. is a, a foot of a, a sheep and oh, they look like a sheep's, that's just put me sheep's off. foot. I don't know whether I prefer but, uh, hedgehog or sheep's foot, really. <laughs> but they're very, they're, they're great to it, and they've got a nutty texture. They're, they're not like slimy like most mushrooms. How do you cook them? Really, just fry them. Yeah. Fry them with, with uh, butter. Oh, so these that I can see, what what are those? What Because that's these, what, they're the kind of ones I end up, you know, well, I go, oh, they're really pretty. I'll take a photo. And obviously that you think are boring. But they're, 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 <laughs> they are very pretty. But I always look at it, there's about, there's about 20 or so edible mushrooms that I'll be interested in. There's about 20 or so poisonous ones, which I'd be aware of. And then there's probably about 3,000 in the middle, which are beautiful, stunning 3, organisms. 3,000? Oh, yeah, in Britain alone. Wow. And they're the ones which, they look pretty, they serve an incredibly important purpose in the ecosystem. But from a culinary point of view, they're neither edible nor poisonous. poisonous. So best left for nature really and amazing I mean that's that's a tiny part of that organism so really you know I look at it as they're almost like the the apples on a tree if right you like. they're the yep. fruiting bodies yep. the organism itself is is in the soil it's in the vegetation and they're serving an incredibly important symbiotic relationship with everything around them so these ones might be digesting the leaves all that dead material breaking it down without fungi we'd be we'd be up to our necks in, in dead vegetation. In fact, there really? would be no vegetation because it's the fungi that allow these trees to grow, allow these trees to actually fix nitrogen and to absorb those, those nutrients and uh, minerals, which alone the plants can't do it. So it's a symbiotic relationship. And we're only no just idea. beginning no to understand the complexities and the important role they play. Um, but most of it is underground. And, uh, you know, fungi are by far the, the biggest, the oldest, the most diverse organisms on the planet 
by far. You know, we we think about you know huge trees and blue whales yeah. and things. No, these are bigger. They're better. Wow. They're, they're they're so important from an ecological point of view. I had no idea actually that they did all that. I have mm. to say, not at all. And they are everywhere you look. So how does it work then? How so? I mean, how does a mushroom get to? How does it, you know? Why is that there? How does it get there? Okay, so and that sounds a really stupid question, <laughs> but I've never, I suppose, it, until this very second, right. forty-three years of my life, I've not okay. actually thought that. So the bulk of it is is here. It's probably in this leaf litter, and there's the mycelium, which are just microscopic little threads. Okay. And they're in there. And they're absorbed. They're probably they're breaking down this leaf material. There's it's other the stuff ones you get in your are, garden, isn't it? When you dig exactly, down, and yeah, absolutely. it's fungi doing that. Wow. They're also, um, all of the roots of every single plant here will have fungi incorporated into those roots which are helping the plant absorb um, those nutrients that it, 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 they can't get on their own. Um, there's other ones, yeah, there's parasitic ones and uh, which are breaking down, which are killing the trees and the plants. Um, the, the harmful ones but again that's all part of nature that's part of the ecosystem i was going to say do you do we do anything about those no, or no? no okay i mean there's some which are which are yeah you know things like you know there's, there's horrible tree diseases at the moment which are having catastrophic effect on ash trees on oak trees yeah they're generally fungi which frankly shouldn't be here they've been brought in by man right okay um but yeah so the the, the mycelium's there the fungus is underground once a year generally in the autumn um, they produce these fruiting bodies which produce spores, much as ah, a plant produces okay. seeds. Those spores go into the air, they float around, they fall somewhere, they start growing, and if there's a suitable host or the suitable medium for them to grow, ah. they'll then carry on and produce a new, a new organism. So if you've got a patch of mushrooms yep. in your garden, are you ever going to get rid of them? Or well, fungi, I hope sorry. not. No, as you know, <laughs> that was badly worded, wasn't it? Sorry, I'd be very blessed. Yeah. So, so if yeah. I happen to be blessed with this yeah. issue, um, is it something that are they are they something that are just going to keep going? Because it's like, for example, yeah, echiums generally. down here. You know, you if you've got echiums in your garden, you're going to have thousands of echiums um, because yeah. they just it's that whole kind of. Yeah, but generally, if you've got mushrooms in your garden, that they're, 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 the seeds aren't necessarily, the spores aren't necessarily creating new organisms. It's the okay. fact that they're, they're already there. They're perennial. They're, they're always right. there. The interesting, if you see a fairy ring, which is that ring of mushrooms yes. you get on your lawn, those are expanding every year and they're just getting a little bit wider because it's as the that oh. organism just grows out a little bit every year. Okay. And you'll see the green, the grass is often a little bit greener around there before the mushrooms come up. And that's because the fungi are releasing the nitrogen out of the soil which is helping the grass yeah it's symbiotic wow the grass is, is dependent on the mushroom and the mushroom is dependent on the grass they depend on each other and the worst thing you can do is either put some fertilizer on because suddenly the grass no longer needs the mushroom yep or you put some fungicide on there and suddenly the, the grass is on its me. own and it don't swear at me fungicide <laughs> <laughs> fungal killer and whilst we're here actually in this very drippy bit of the wood um lichen okay. lichen right that's that because i love the stuff and i can yeah. already see here i mean I, I can see like two bits here and you're going to tell me it's about 40 or something aren't you, well, you now obviously lichen if we just explain to people obviously what we're looking at is because different people say lichen people like and people try and get rid of it don't they which is you know and again you go it's actually a sign of living in an incredibly healthy area isn't well, it absolutely you won't see that this is a just a branch of oak that's fallen on the on the woodland floor and it's absolutely covered. Every single square millimetre of this is covered in lichen. Yeah. And there's probably, counting, there's probably at least half a dozen species so on this incredible. stick alone. Now you won't find that in large parts of the British Isles or in Europe yeah. because they're so sensitive to air pollution 
and we are blessed with clean air here. We're on the edge of the Atlantic, um, so these these lichens are able to grow here. They're not. You won't find these in the you know in the Midlands or outskirts of London. They're coming back. Air is getting cleaner, and we're finding more and more of these spreading to other parts. But effectively, what we're looking at here is another incredible symbiotic relationship between a fungus and an algae. Okay. And the algae has worked out that it's completely it's a single-celled organism. It has no physical presence. It has no body, no structure. Um, but it can photosynthesize. It's easy for so you to say. Photosynthesize. <laughs> so it can, it can, it can um, um, uh, store the energy of sunlight, basically, yep. through its chlorophyll. The fungi, on the other hand, has a structure, has a body, but it has no ability to, to create its own energy from sunlight. So they've got together, the, the, the fungi and the algae, and said, hey, I'll tell you what, we're much better in partnership. Let's work together and create this, this partnership, which is the lichen. And so you see here, this, this, is, um, this is one species here, another one here. And then so how do you know, see, I, to me, that looks like the same thing. You see, I, obviously, I can see very clearly that there's a difference in those two. We're yeah. looking at one that's kind of sticking up and a bit kind of bushy, mm-hmm. and one that, quite frankly, looks like a lettuce leaf. Um, but um, obviously, Justin, you know, you're saying there's there's different bits. So I'm I'm just really interested to know how I can kind of go about well, even seeing these the differences. tiny little black dots there. That's that's a lichen. That actually lichen. That white stuff there. That's a lichen. That's, wow. So one, two. So three, lichen isn't just four. green then. Oh gosh, no! No, it's no, no. Black, so okay. All, all colours, and you know, we just every single different shade of colour on that stick there is a different lichen. And what's amazing, they're incredibly slow growing, and they'll grow towards each other. When they start touching each other, they then start having this ridiculously slow motion yeah. chemical warfare, where one is competing with the other, and. Um, so, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, I tell you, amazing. I tell you what. If you haven't read my column, have a look at um, my column, um, and there will be some photographs of this on here, on there for you, um, because it really is incredible. And it's a great one. You know, again, if you're walking in the woods with your kids or anything else, um, you know, get them to pick up a stick, have a look. It's just about that awareness of what's around us. Um, we all go for a walk, but do we really know what we're actually walking on or through? I'm sorry, what was this stuff called? This, did you say that the, the, the little... Oh, the Cornish pennywort. Pun- I know yeah. what moss is. Even I yes. know what moss is. <laughs> yeah, this is the pennywort. It's growing out of the little crev- crevices. You so normally is... find it growing out of Cornish hedges, but here it's growing out of yeah, tree I mean, bark. I never, I suppose, I've seen it, mm. but I never obviously knew what it's it edible. was. Is it? Yeah, yeah, you can eat it. Yeah. Don't die on me. and you've, no. got, you've got the car keys. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not insured. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. on our own, Woody. Well, I'm very pleased to report that Justin was quite right. It was edible and he's absolutely fine. Um, I'd also like to say a huge thank you to him for his time. He certainly brought Frenchman's Creek to life for me. And I really hope that that came across to yourselves too. And hopefully you'll visit us here as well. Next time, I'm going to be off to National Trust Trilitic um, over in Truro, which is the beautiful house and gardens. And I will tell you more about that, obviously, in my next podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Now, who would have thought that the National Trust was a subject ripe for comedy? OK, you're doing your own jokes now. Well, comedian and performer Helen Wood obviously thought there was mileage in it, in more ways than one, as she created her new show, The National Trust Fan Club, based on her quest to visit every single trust place in her lifetime. Described as what happens if you imagine a Dave Gorman show delivered by your bouncy Auntie Joyce, 
I just had to find out more about the Trust's biggest fan. So I met her at Hitcut, one of the places she needed to tick off her list to get the lowdown. I'm Helen Wood and I perform at the National Trust Fan Club, which is a solo comedy show. And can you tell us, Helen, what was the inspiration for the show? Well, the very first inspiration uh, that goes back to 2017 is when a friend of mine uh, suggested I should do a show about the National Trust as a follow-up to my previous show about uh, Ordnance Survey maps. Now, the friend happens to be Tony Berry, who's the Director of Visitor Experience for the National Trust. When he first suggested it, I first dismissed the idea, but it wasn't until a year later when I remembered and thought, no, actually, why not? That could be a really good thing as my next subject for my next comedy show. And what, what form does the show take? Uh, the show uh, is a quest uh, to visit lots of different National Trust properties and sites. Uh, I set off at the start of the show telling the audience that I'm going to visit all of the properties uh, in England and Wales in my lifetime. But for the first year, I will go to a hundred different places. And uh, the show is that journey that I go on and I include lots of personal stories of properties that have been significant. Uh, different people I've met on the way, volunteers I've met. Uh, it also includes an interview with Tony Berry in the show, uh, who doesn't appear in person, but I reenact that interview I had with him uh, as a puppet. Uh, there's also a big section on cream teas, which gets very interactive. I get the audience to decide uh, amongst themselves which is the correct choice between uh, plain or fruit, uh, jam on or cream on first, and of course whether it's scone or scone. The big questions of the day. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the winner of those choices, because uh, there is a winner, gets a cream tea uh, and they have to eat it before the end of the show. So do, do you have personal preferences for those three things? Oh, I, I do, but maybe I shouldn't say because people might come to the show and think that that's uh, the, the choice they need to say to win the cream tea. Uh, and of course, if I was to go to Devon and, or Cornwall to do the show, um, people might not want to come and see it because I'm so anti their, their choice. Could be a riot, absolutely. Could be a riot, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the, in the, all the places that you've visited so far this year, uh, how, how many have been in the southwest? Well, for my uh, challenge, uh, which started actually in 2018 and finished in the summer of 2019, I uh, went to uh, well, I went to Knights Hayes in Devon, Castle Drogo, Alarond, Finch Foundry. Also went to several in Dorset. Various Thomas Hardy and T. Lawrence houses, as well as lots of outdoor spaces. Went to Studland Bay Nudist Beach, is okay. included in the, in the challenge. 
but uh, there were no nudists on that day because it was quite a chilly day. <laughs> Gorf Castle uh, nearby. Uh, yeah, that's uh, and and various ones. Oh, Tinsfield uh, in Somerset. Um, so yeah, a, a dozen or so are in the southwest. Does, does the fact that there are, I think, 500 National Trust properties, does that put you off on the challenge? I actually, when I started, I counted, including the outdoor spaces, it's actually 566. And it did put me off. But because um, in the first year, well, no spoilers for the show, but uh, I did pretty well. Uh, and I've got the whole of the rest of my life. So, yeah, I'll get there in the end. <laughs> I'm not put off. Was there a sort of uh, family background with the trust that sort of inspired all of this? Yes, there was. So my mother, my mother Florence, she became a life member uh, when she was 55. And uh, she'd enjoyed going to National Trust properties. And I, I uh, know she felt it was an awful lot to spend of £75 when she became a life member but she carried on going to properties for the next 38 years. So it was definitely well worth it. And I would often go with her as her plus one during those 38 years. And as I say in the show, it meant that I got my stately home fix without paying a penny, because uh, I went with, with her. And of all the other places you've seen, uh, I'm assuming you got to the 100, I won't give anything away. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite? My favorite is got to be the Beatles homes in Liverpool. Uh, we made a special trip, my husband and I, uh, to go on that trip and you go to the two homes, John's and Paul's, in a minibus. And I love them because they were just ordinary houses and they, they actually reminded me so much of my childhood home. And it felt like you're just in an ordinary house where ordinary people lived but added to that, you knew what they did in those rooms, in that cramped little living room, and sat together and wrote those songs. And in fact, the, the two um, guides uh, in those properties that take you around were great. They're just great storytellers and actually a married couple. Uh, the woman does the one house and uh, the husband does the other. Uh, just a great day. And what's next on your tour? Uh, well, the challenge carries on. So uh, I'm yeah, going to National Trust properties and walking on National Trust land um, regularly. Uh, but as far as the show, I'm going to be doing about 20 venues next spring, starting from the end of January through till May. Uh, and uh, all around all around England. I don't think there's any bookings in Wales, which is a shame. And where can people uh, find out those details if they want to come and see the show? From November, they will certainly all be posted on my website, which is helenwood.co.uk. How did you get into the world of comedy? Well, I've, I've performed um, since being a child and uh, did a lot of community theatre uh, in my 20s and 30s where I just loved playing comic characters that was my favorite and it was in more recent years that I uh, started doing some stand-up which again I really enjoyed 
that connection with the audience, getting a chance to improvise a bit, have a, a, the communication with the audience. It's what you can get with comedy. And I understand your, your four-legged friend accompanies you on some of these trips as well. Uh, yeah, Henry, my Labrador, uh, he does. But of course, he does get banned <laughs> from a lot of places. And I do talk about that in the show, that he does spend a lot of his National Trust experiences are in the back of the car. Touchy subject for some of our places. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Helen. And no, thank uh, you. hope you enjoy having a look around Hidcote as well yeah. while we're here. Thank you. No, I'm looking forward to having a look around. Well, that's all for this edition of the Inspire podcast. I hope you'll join us again next year for more inspiring stories from the Southwest. And don't forget to let us know what you think. I'm Ben Vizard, and I hope if you've been good, Father Christmas brings you everything you asked for. If you asked never to hear a Christmas song again, I'm afraid you're out of luck. Happy Christmas. <laughs>